Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be back. Was it 2005? That's a while ago. I would have had all black hair back then. Um, so nice to be here. Uh, this is a big crowd. I want to start as I should by uh, acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land. Um, delighted to be here. Thank you for your reference to rugby league, real football. I'll explain that to you as we go. You'll get there. If you can embrace the Melbourne storm, um, we can embrace a new national anthem, I'm sure of that. I want to, uh, this morning, um, just give you a bit of an insight into that whole Stronger Smarter pr approach. The last time I was here, it was a, a philosophical approach that was just taking off. And uh, since then, we've been able to... I left Sherbrooke School, where we did pretty well, and uh, we've worked with more than 450 schools right across Australia now to get them to understand this philosophical approach. Um, and it's an approach designed to do things with people, not to people. I, uh, my intention is to give you a sense of where all of that came from. And um, in order to do that, I probably will get a little bit um, autobiographical along the way and just share, share some thoughts. And then later on, we'll get to ask some questions. And by the way, any question is OK. And if you want to ask me about rugby league, greatest game of all, um, I can... <laughs> I can talk with you about that. Um, and it is State of Origin Week this week. You've probably got no idea what that actually means. But it's why I'm wearing this tie. Yep, I've got a Queenslander down here. Any New South Wales supporters in the room? Good luck with that. Uh, no. We mustn't tease the New South Wales group, uh, supporters because you did... Where are they? You did get one in a row. Remember that? Uh, OK. So this is stronger, smarter... Thing. Let me tell you all about it. Um, I want to just... Uh, I already explained that. So this is my country, right? Uh, my grandmother's country is Gurang and just... Uh, my hometown is Bundaberg. That's my grandfather's country. Um, this is the Burnett River that you can see on the bottom. And so it's in southeast Queensland. Um, that's my country. And it's really special to be able to stand here and say that, that I've grown up on my country. So that river that you can see there, uh, I fish in that river when I was a, ever since I was young. And it's a, it's a really strengthening feeling to sit there and think, man, my people have fished in this river for thousands of years. Uh, it's a very cool thing. Um, so that's a little bit about my country and where I'm from. This is... Uh, a little bit about in and around Bundaberg. Now, some of you will, you'll see that Burnett River there flowing through there. Or maybe I'll just, um, hopefully you can see up here. Let me just do this. This is the house. You, you can't, obviously you can't see it well on there, but this is the house that I grew up in. And um, straight across the road is the Milliquin Mill. And that's where they make all this stuff here, Bundaberg sugar. You've all seen that, right? Bundaberg sugar. It's, there's probably some outside there. And so the school that I went to is up here, uh, up there, in fact, Bundaberg East State School. It's closed down and they moved to a flasher, flasher location. But my point is they, that in the afternoons or in the mornings, so we'd walk home from school. Sometimes we'd walk this way, sometimes we'd walk this way. And you can see these huge, there are some huge sheds here. 
And uh, in those sheds, they just put sugar on the ground and they're like sand dunes. And so on the way home, just for fun, if we were bored, we'd run up and down these sand dunes and roll down, we'd have sugar in our hair. That's how come I'm sweet. I'm just watching see how she's saying it. Um, and then so we'd, all these black kids would be rolling down the sugar and then they package it all up like that and they'll send it out to you. <laughs> this, this one here, we all know this one, right? Bundaberg rum. Uh, that's made in this place here. So under, there's a tap that comes under here. <laughs> I'm kidding about that, I'm joking, I'm joking. Do you know what the truth is? I don't drink Bundaberg rum. Me and Bundaberg rum went out one night when I was 19. <laughs> we had never been out since. Um, so that's that. Yeah. Anyway, so here's my family. There's my, this is my father. My father was Italian. Um, was born in a village called Milianico in Abruzzo in um, Italy. And... Uh, in 1929, uh, 1924, then came out to Australia in 1952 and uh, work, was a hard worker. And he um, just taught us the value of work. You can see my family there, we're a pretty ragtag mob. Um, six boys and uh, four girls in my family. Interesting thing about my father was he had a wife and three kids in Italy before he came out to Australia. Got with my mum, had ten kids, yeah, he was pretty fertile. Um, <laughs> He knew how to make them. Um, so yeah, six boys in my family. And I, the, one of the neat things was, like my father wasn't, he was never a good speaker of English, uh, but he worked very hard. And uh, we basically grew up in the, when he wasn't working for the city council, doing curbing and channeling, he'd be out in the small crops and we'd be out there with him picking tomatoes or pumpkins or zucchinis or bird's eye chilies that we would send to Melbourne. Um, and in the summertime, we picked tobacco. I must have picked a million tobacco leaves in my day. Um, but it was a nice thing, you know, because I remember being out in the paddock as early as um, seven, eight years old, and occasionally you'd go and pick a little bit, and then you'd go and sit on the tractor and have a rest. But by the time I was 13, 14, I was picking my own row, and I was getting paid a man's wages. Uh, and there was something special about that because very clearly we've made that transition from boyhood into manhood in the, in the tobacco fields. And we'd learnt, you know, things in life now that if, you, if you're going to get paid a man's wage, you have to pick your row. Uh, and if you slack off, then somebody else has got to come and pick up your, pick up your row. Uh, and you don't stop until the job's finished, otherwise you let other people down. Uh, was an important kind of message, and I learnt the value and learnt to enjoy hard work. I uh, still do. I still do enjoy it. Uh, from my mum, my mum is quite a champion, you know, in, but in different ways to what my father was. She, she, um, she um, was a very strong, very proud Aboriginal woman. And you see that house there? That's the house that I grew up in. Um, you can see that chimney across the road. That's not coming out of our roof. That's the... <laughs> That's the chimney for Milliquin Mill. And um, I didn't realise this until I wrote my book some years later that my mum sort of created a... It's almost like she created a force field around our house that made growing up positive and made us strong. I... Um,
I just think back, you know, to this, remember this is a time I was born in 1967. You're probably thinking more like 1980 or something like that. But um, <laughs> I was born in 67, growing up in this house, uh, East Bundaberg. Joe Bialki Peterson was still the premier. Remember that? Don't you worry about that, Moe. Um, so over the back of our house was this guy who used to throw rocks at us when we were kids and call, used to call my mum an old black gin and things like that. And when we'd be out the front playing football, he'd swerve his car at us. And you try to make sense of what that's all about, but never ever do really. And the guy over the side, of, on the other side of our house, would call us little black bastards and um, try to accuse us of stealing his chooks and all of that kind of thing. Um, yet still we'd, he was an old drunk and still we, if we saw him, we'd see him in the afternoons come around and fall off his bike and we'd still go and pick him up and take him home to his, to his wife and his wife was a lovely old woman. She'd say, oh, you should have left the old bastard out there. Um, but we just never did, you know. And in, in part, I, I put that down to the lessons my mum used to give us because um, she would teach us about racism and how to deal with it and she'd teach us about being a good human being and things like that. Um, and that's in part, that's probably why we went and picked that old fella up in spite of how he spoke about us. And uh, my mum's um, brothers, and she had a sister, Auntie Molly, who was like another um, mum to, to us. And she would, um, my mum's brothers were, I don't know, for whatever reason, they, had, they did succumb to the racism that existed in society and uh, some of them turned to alcoholism and we did see domestic violence and things like that in and around our family, but never in our house. And so uh, we were kind of protected from that. And somehow my mother and my father created this sort of household where it was respected. And so I remember as a kid, my old uncles would come to our place, not ever to get on the charge or anything like that, but usually to dry out and get themselves back on track and get their head clear and then, and then off they'd go. It was a pretty special thing. And then my mum would say to us, you know, we'd see our old uncles over North Bundaberg under the bridge with a flag and lying down, charged up, and my mum always said, you, don't you ever turn your back on your family. That's, that's your family, and there's reasons why they are where they are. And, and, um, and you, must never, you must never turn your back on them anyway. So I think we receive great messages about the, just honouring the humanity of others. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's that. Um, I finished school in 1984. Is anybody, there's others here, it was quite a year to finish school. Um, that's me on my first day of school there, um, just here. My two sisters on either side. I have another brother who was on, he started grade one with me at the same time. But me and him are having issues at the moment, so I just cut him out of that photo. <laughs> that's enough. That's another story. <laughs> yeah. And you know what else? Look at this. Look at that school emblem there. What is that? Like they put books and study books and netball players, and then they want us to put that on our open rugby league greatest game of all. <laughs> put that on our jerseys and run out and play football and get fired up. Anyway. I was a pretty ugly baby when I was young. But anyway. So 84. And look, we, we had a good time at school. We'd... Um, but again, we'd, we'd be subjected to racism. Um, 
but we never let it put us down. You know, again, we'd come home, we'd just cry to mum, oh, they're calling us black coons and black niggers. And my mum would say to us, yes, you are black. And don't you ever let anybody put you down. Uh, you're no better, no worse than any other man. And don't you ever put yourself below anybody else. And then we'd have this conversation about racism and why they would try to put us down. And she'd say, um, you know, it's like they're up here. And it's funny, you know, because I was having this same conversation with my son, Marcellus, who got called a black C-U-N-T on the bus about six months ago. And it's, so he comes home to me and I have the same conversation and say, look, it's like they see you up here and they, they're feeling like they're down there. And the only way they think they can bring you down to the same level as them is by the colour of your skin or saying something about you being Aboriginal. But you and me both know that being Aboriginal is special, that there's something magical. And we're the first Australians, you know. That's our, our, we're, we're the ones who carry the blood of the very first Australians. And don't, you can't ever let anybody pull you down. And then when you understand it in that context, you kind of actually start to feel sorry for those people who are down here. And then we have a conversation about how to lift them up and try to make them feel better about themselves so that they don't have to try and put us down. Interesting, hey? So that's that. Uh, I'll go back a step. Uh, at the end of, uh, in 1984, I finished high school, grade 12, and everybody's talking about this um, QTAC forms. And I'm thinking, what the hell is that? What does that mean? Uh, and QTAC stand for Queensland Tertiary Admissions Centre. It was the form you fill in if you want to go to college. Uh, so I go and see the guidance counsellor. I said, what is this QTAC thing? He said, oh, that's the form you fill in. If you want to go to college or university, he says, you've got enough board subjects. I thought, I don't even know what that means. Um, anyway, he says, what would you like to do? And I said, I don't know. That's what I come to see you for. <laughs> he says, what do you think is the best job? Anyway, I love phys ed at school. I love the thought of not being locked inside all the time, inside, outside. And I said, oh, phys ed teacher. And he says, well, let's put that down. He says, you won't get into phys ed because the score is too high. And we'll put these other courses down. And the other courses were for uh, agricultural college. So we filled in this form. I walked out the door thinking, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> Still had no idea. But anyway, just by chance, um, went off. Summer commenced. I was finished high school, went to prom. Oh, getting flashbacks now. Um, <laughs> we don't have to talk about that. But um, I'm off in the tobacco, and then I get this letter in the mail that says, this is how smart you are, 750, that's your score. And it was like smack bang in the middle of the... It was average, right in the middle of the bell curve. Um, because I thought when you are in school, all you had to do was pass your tests, and that was fine. I didn't realise that the harder you work at school the higher your grades go and the more options you get. I didn't really understand that at the time. Um, so uh, I got this score 750. And then a couple of days later, I get this other letter in the mail that says, we know that you want to um, study phys ed. And it was from this place here, um, Calvin Grove Teachers College. It says, we know you want to do phys ed. We know you haven't got the right score. We're just running this program where we want to get more Aboriginal teachers into secondary schools. Come down for an interview. We'll see what you've got. And um, we'll go from there. So I go down. I um, do an interview. I write a good essay. They think I can do it. And then I'm looking at this score of mine that tells me how smart I am. And then I'm looking at the entry score for phys ed was 9, 10. And I'm thinking, nah, 
I don't know, I don't think so. And they said, oh, no, don't worry about that uh, because that's just a screening process. What, what actually happens is the course is three years because in those days um, you could do a, a three-year teaching diploma and then you could start teaching after three years. This was back before the war, um, <laughs> a while ago. Iraq war, Iraq war. Um, <laughs> And they said, we'll just spread your course out over four years and just start off in a gentle workload, 60%, and then we'll build you up as you get more confident. So I had a look at this, and I had a look at that, and I thought, all right, let's do this. So I got in, and uh, I started off on a 60% workload. It was going okay. Then went to a 90% workload, and then somewhere in there, I'll, um, I met this guy, not that guy there, but this guy <laughs> here, a fellow called Dr. Gary McLennan, a feisty Irishman. Um, and I put that picture of the Bjelke-Peterson riots there because my mum and I were watching TV uh, first mid-semester break. She's saying, what's it like, this um, college, teacher's college? I said, oh, it's OK. I've got this mentor called Gary. And as we're watching the news, they'd thrown this guy in a paddy wagon at these rallies. I said, that's him there. That's the guy. <laughs> so Gary got me to reflect on my life and reflect on my time in school. And... Um, have another look. So I, in, in my book I described my, the circumstance where my mum and dad had kindled a sense of fire in my belly and um, Gary had come along and threw petrol on it um, because he really did grab me by the intellectual scruff of the neck and make me see the world differently. Uh, he got me to go and talk to my mum about her education, which I did and I hadn't really thought to do up until then and said, now how come you didn't... Um, I said, what was school like for you, Mum? She says, well, I only went to grade three or grade four. And I said, how come? Why didn't you go to high school? She said, well, we weren't allowed. They just thought of us as uncivilised natives and didn't think we could learn. So I thought, oh, yeah. And then I talked to my older sister about her education. And she says, oh, yeah, I remember old Havis um, when we were in grade two and my brother and I, uh, Grant and I, were in the classroom. And she says um, to the whole class, I'm going to grab a... Tomorrow I'm going to bring in a bathtub and I'll wash these Aboriginal kids because they stink. Um, and you think, man, imagine if you're an eight-year-old trying to make sense of that. Uh, and imagine, like, my sister lives not far from me now and she's got her own kids. And um, I just think of those Aboriginal parents who are getting smashed around for supposedly not valuing education. Uh, and if that's the experience that they had, then why the hell would they value something that would do that to you, you know? So it's interesting. Then I reflect on my own experience and find out, do you know what, I've been sold short by school as well and that score of 750 didn't really actually tell me how smart I truly was. And so remembering I'm, by this stage I'm 17 years old, I'm loaded with testosterone um, and I start to get a bit gully, a bit angry about this. Um, and I go and see the people who are organising my course and say, I want to finish this course in three years, same time as everybody else. Uh, so what it meant was I was going to have to catch up and do um, more work than all the other kids who had this score. Um, so I, I was, for the last two years, I was going to have to work 110, 120% workload to catch up on what I didn't do before. Does that make sense? So that's what I did. Uh, and I worked my ass off in those last two years. Look, you can see. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, I worked really hard. I had to put my illustrious rugby league career on hold. <laughs> Greatest game of all. Um, but I, because I was so determined to finish, you know, with that revelation. And I passed everything, you know. I finished everything. Um, and, you know, you'd think, you'd think um, 
that I'll be happy to be finished. But the truth is I was even more angry because I thought, how the hell can you have a circumstance where the system would tell me this is how smart I was, yet for the last two years I've worked harder than the, the kids who got this score and I did more than them. And some of those had dropped out for whatever reasons, um, but I got through and smashed it. How, how could I be led to believe that I was only worth this much? And if I was sold short like that, how many other black kids are sold short like that? And how many other kids in general are sold short because teachers don't believe in who they are and what they can achieve because of the colour of their skin or what side of the railway track they live on, all those kinds of things. I'll go back. Um, so that's that. This is the Norman B Hotel where I fell in love. Um, quite a few times, actually. Um, <laughs> And, and when, uh, when, when we finished teachers' college, we did the last exam, and they were all saying, there's no jobs in, in, for teaching. There's no jobs anymore. And I, th I think they say that every year. But anyway, we'd been out celebrating at the Norman B Hotel, and then I get this call the next morning, early in the morning. So, like, early. It's like half past ten, and I am <laughs> pick up the phone. In those days, it was like the... You know the phone, you can't just grab the phone like that. And then you've got to get up and walk to the phone. And, and the ring was really loud, hurting my head. And I, hello. And this big voice comes down the phone. This is Frank Underwood from the Department of Education in the Darling Downs. So I would like to speak to Mr. Chris Zara. Yes, this is me. We have a job for you, teaching at Cecil Plains, uh, secondary phys ed and English. Will you ex are you likely to accept this position? Yes, I'll accept the position. And then he says... Do you know where Cecil Plains is? I'm like, I've never heard of Cecil Plains. Anyway, and it was just on the other side of Toowoomba Range. So I was a teacher and off I went. Um, I went on this journey all over the place, got some messages along the way, went back to Bundaberg. Um, I won't go into all of that. Um, but I ended up as principal at Sherberg School um, where, you know, I would have talked about that the last time I was here, but we worked pretty hard there. We turned things around. We got some good results, um, 62 to 94%. It's, I, I often smile when I watch the Indigenous Affairs Minister trying to come out with this big stick approach and all of that kind of thing. To, and they say, well, we got a 0.5 shift in attendance with this big stick truancy approach. We didn't do any of that. We didn't threaten to cut people's welfare payments. We just worked with people to create a school that kids wanted to turn up to, regardless of their home circumstances. I can come back to that later if you like. I was in Schoberg just not last week and the weekend before, actually, and of those five teacher aides who went on to teaching, there was one, I ran into one uh, who's still teaching at the school, who came off of work for the Dole program, and he's the phys ed teacher there. Uh, the other lady is the, what was, the training program that I put them on was called RATEP, Remote Area Teacher Education Program. And one of the ladies who I'd put on to go through that program, she was now the coordinator of that program. Hell of a story. Oops, sorry. I don't know how that one got in there. I want to see more of that this week. I do love that photo, though. That one. Do you think, is it wrong to have that on your screensaver? I know how that got in there. Um, when we set up the Stronger Smarter Institute, uh, because I didn't want to go to another school, it didn't make sense to go to another school when I'd finished at Sherberg didn't make sense to go into academia, even though I'd been writing my PhD and had finished it um, while I was at running the school. And uh, it didn't make sense to go and work in central office either. That's a whole other story. 
So um, the institute's been running for the last 12 years. Um, I ran it for 10 years. Uh, we, like I said, worked with more than 450 schools with a reach of more than 20-something thousand Indigenous kids. And one of the things I really like along the way is that we, um, we've done good things for poor white kids as well, because as I've said in other places, you know, they're just as infected by this toxic stench of low expectations. Um, yeah, so it's been nice to be able to create a shift in the profession for, for them as well. So this is what we um, this is what we call the stronger, smarter philosophy. Um, a lot of very sexy words up there, but basically it's about honouring that positive sense of identity, uh, acknowledging, embracing positive community leadership, um, anchored by high expectations relationships. And then we talk when we talk about high expectations relationships, we talk about those which honour the humanity of others, um, and in so doing, acknowledge one's strengths capacity and human right to emancipatory opportunity. So what I want to do is just drill down on some of those, those key points. Uh, in conversations with teachers, and it's no different to conversations with you in the work that you do, whether you're health workers, whether you work in a not-for-profit on whatever sorts, of, um, whatever sorts of issues you work with, when it comes to working with Aboriginal clients, uh, it's pretty clear you have a choice. You can either um, the work that you do and the way you engage families or individuals is going to be designed to nurture a stereotype or smash it to bits. At some level, it's that, it's that simple. And so in schools, we have this kind of stereotypical view that exists. Um, and as teachers, we either collude with that or smash it to bits. And so if you take the one for poor health, for instance, if I'm a teacher in a classroom and I've got Aboriginal kids running around with a snotty nose and I never say, go and blow your nose, we don't have snotty noses in this classroom. Or I think, if I don't do that and I just say, oh, well, that's just how Aboriginal kids are, well, I'm actually colluding with that stereotype and I'm allowing it to be true when it has no right to be true. If I'm a principal and I haven't got the courage to go and sit down with parents to talk about why their kids are not coming to school consistently and I just say, oh, no, that's that family, that's the Aboriginal families, um, they've got hard lives, blah, 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 then I'm, I'm actually colluding with that perception and making it more true than it needs to be. Um, interestingly, uh, some Aboriginal kids, some Aboriginal clients that you might work with will collude with that perception as well, you know, thinking that that's their cultural identity, when in fact it's not a, it's not a cultural identity, it's just a negative stereotype that we're tricked into thinking is our cultural identity. I'll come back to that point later on. I want to talk to you about this notion of... Um, being other and being same, because it's one of those things that confuses us a bit. So I want, let me just share this sort of intellectual insight with you. Um, and I'd ask you to reflect on that um, for your own purposes, if that's useful, and I think it will be. Uh, and I'll come back to why I want, want you to think about this when you're working with Aboriginal clients trying to build healthier communities. Because we get tricked into this thing about saying, well, are you Aboriginal? Are you Italian? Are you Australian? Or what? Or... You see these redneck nut jobs. Oh, you've got to be everybody's Australian and blah, 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 and bang their fist and get grumpy for whatever reason. But if we understand the notion of identity in this way, then we're set free from a lot of that kind of, um, how would you say, uh, bullshit, I suppose. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to see how you say bullshit. <laughs> All right. Um, So you heard me say my father was Italian, 
my mum's Aboriginal. Um, we live in Australia. So you might say to me, well, you're Italian or Aboriginal or what? Well, the truth is, if I, if I perceive my identity in this way, which I do, um, then I'm all of those things. And so at my core, like you, I'm human. And my sense of cultural identity is a media, mediation upon my core humanity, or like a layer, if you like. And so there's this Aboriginal layer, there's this Italian layer, there may be an Australian layer. Um, and each of those mediations will resonate according to time and place, um, depending on the context. And so when I'm in um, Abruzzo in Miglianico and I'm speaking Italian with my half-brother, my sense of being Italian is resonating very strongly. And so in that moment, because of what I'm doing, and it, if I'm standing at the graves of my father, uh, my nonno and my nonna, then my sense of being Italian is resonating very strongly because of where I am and what I'm doing and what's happening in that time and that place. And so in that moment, I feel very Italian and I'm fiercely proud of that. I haven't surrendered my sense of being Aboriginal. It's just not resonating as strongly. Does that make sense? But when I'm home at my beautiful Burnett River and I'm fishing there thinking about how cool it is to be fishing in my, my people's river, I look across, I see Paddy's Island. I know that in the last 180 years, my, some of my ancestors were slaughtered over there and I wonder about what it was like for them. My sense of being Aboriginal resonates really strongly upon my core humanity. Uh, when the bloke over the back is calling me a little black bastard or something like that, or I'm getting subjected to low expectations in schools, or I'm standing here talking to you about um, indigenous communities, my sense of being Aboriginal resonates upon my core humanity really strongly. Um, I haven't surrendered my sense of being Italian. It's just not resonating as strongly. Does that make sense? And so most of my life, positively or negatively, I, I feel and my sense of being Aboriginal resonates the strongest for the longest. You know? So when I stand and I listen to a national anthem that pushes me to the margins and pretends I doesn't, don't exist because this nation's supposed to be young and free, but I know that we've been here 50,000 years, that makes my sense of being Aboriginal resonate more strongly. Um, there are times when my sense of being Australian might resonate, but not a lot, I've got to say. You know, I, I, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but the Australian flag doesn't float my boat. You know, When I think Australian flag, I think of Cronulla riots. I think of Pauline Hanson wrapping her dirty body in the Australian flag. So if anything, that's quite a repelling thought. Um, Yet I don't want to be disrespectful because people would have fought under that flag and all that. And so, you know, I acknowledge those things. Um, but I don't feel connected to that. Um, I mentioned I don't feel connected to the anthem. When I think of being Australian, I, you know, one day I was sitting on a plane up in business class and the lady comes and she says, um, gives me toast. And I said, have you got any Vegemite? And um, she says, yeah, I'll go and get some for you. And then this American lady sitting next to me, she says, boy, you sure know you're on an Aussie plane when you can get Vegemite just like that. So I thought, oh, yeah, maybe that's my sense of being Australian. Um, <laughs> and you know, maybe it was, you know, when my mum's house, that house you saw before, got smashed in the 2013 floods. Uh, thankfully, my mum was gone by then. Um, but I remember standing at the front of the house where my brother and I were just looking at this house and we didn't know where to start. Uh, and all these people just turned up from nowhere and just helped us, like <coughs> Mud Army style. And I thought, yeah, maybe that's 
a very Australian thing to do. Who knows? So what's the point of all this? Well, I think it becomes relevant for you and for me when we, when we make decisions in our organisations or the places that we work in about outcomes for Aboriginal families or Aboriginal clients or um, uh, anything like that. One of the mistakes I think we make is that we, we forget about the core humanity and we, come, we get stuck on the mediation of being Aboriginal and then we make our decisions about what's good enough for those families. And so we decide, we think, okay, Aboriginal family, that's where we need to go, okay? But my point is this, that often what we need to do, and I think every time what we need to do, is to drop down to the core humanity that we share and at that level, we need to decide what outcomes are good enough for Aboriginal children or Aboriginal families. And then at that level of the core humanity, when we decide that that's where we need to go as opposed to there, once we've decided that that's where we need to go, then we need to remember and take into account that, that mediation of being Aboriginal and factor that into the pursuit of uh, getting to that outcome. Does that make sense? And I, I think in other, other similar sorts of ways, I watch these mistakes being made when you know, we work with kids or families with disabilities and stuff like that. And I, I imagine that that disability could be construed as another layer upon core humanity. And it's another place, I think, where we forget about to drop down to the level of the core humanity and we get stuck on that mediation of disability or being Aboriginal. And often that's loaded with contaminated kind of perceptions about what's good enough. And that's why we end up there instead of dropping down to here and ending up there. Make sense? So think about that. I, um, how are we doing for time? Oops, sorry, I don't know how that got there. <laughs> I'm going to jump across this. I'll just, I'll just talk to you about um, leadership. I mentioned um, the notion of um, embracing positive community leadership as, a, as opposed to that kind of booting the victim type leadership, which is very problematic, or that kind of being the victim type leadership. And if you look at it, it's that booting the victim, being the victim is a, what I would argue is a low expectations, kind of one that will collude with that negative stereotype. And so will the booting the victim type one. It might appear like it's got high expectations, but really it just perpetuates that sort of uh, negative stereotype. What I'm arguing is in your work, you should be looking to um, collaborate with a beyond the victim type leadership. I want to just share this story with you about a guy who worked with me at the school, Hooper. Um, in, in the book I was talking about, um, I was talking about um, how when I, when I was at the school I'd often work back late and these drunks would walk through and they'd stop in and want to talk and often was the same old conversation going around and round. Um, but not this guy. He was, Hooper was one of those guys. One of these vagabond friends was Hooper Coleman. He was such a rogue with the blackest skin, wrapped around a stocky, yet reasonably muscular body. Every scar on his face and body had its own story about fights he had gotten into, police he had run from in his younger days, but most were about some lady he had loved and forsaken. He had a lot of scars. Hooper would sometimes stumble in, telling me that he'd been drinking metho and it would be clear from the smell that he was talking straight with me. Hooper never bothered me in the same way that others did, though, because I was often 
so intrigued by the things he would tell me about. And I just talked about a whole bunch of things. To many, Hooper might have seemed like just some old drunk, but he was offering me an amazing insight into the challenges of Aboriginal people in the 1960s and 70s. And I just talked a little bit about what those differences were. I was blown away by Hooper's stories of the cruel treatment he received as a small child growing up in the Schoberg Boys Dormitory. The fact that he decided to escape spoke volumes to me about what type of man he was and the strength of his spirit. He would not be assimilated in accordance with the policy intent of the time. Despite such cruelty, Hooper remained true to his sense of self, true to his people and true to his spirit. I went on to um, other things. Hooper was obviously intelligent and well-read, yet it seemed in a conventional context he had little to show for it. In part, I guess, it may have been because he didn't step up into the right places at the right times. Conversely, I'm also certain it was partly because the people he encountered simply didn't have the capacity to embrace the leadership skills that he had to offer. Maybe this was because he didn't come in the conventional leadership package. Maybe it was because it was easier to oppress and contain him rather than engage him in some type of authentic dialogue in which all would be challenged and as a result be better. Whatever it was, I was not going to make the same mistake of missing out on what he had to offer. Now this is me talking to him. Hey brother, you ever thought about coming to work here at the school with me? I got nearly all females on staff and I need some strong males in the place. What? You looking for a new groundsman or something? No, no, I need to see you in the classroom. These kids have got to see you in action and they need to hear the things that you've got to say. Oh, yeah, I reckon I could give that a crack, he replied, as I edged closer to cutting a deal with him. As he thought about it, he became even more animated. You know, these kids are really smart, but they just got to be given a chance. They got, they got hard lives, some of them, but they just need someone to kick them along and keep telling them they can do it. It was bad enough all the shit I had to go through when I was a kid, and I don't want to see them end up like me. They've got a lot of opportunities now, and if they can just step up and get that little bit of a kick along, they can really go places. Not like me. That's what I want them to do. It was an awesome soliloquy. I watched on in silence. And so I guess, the, I guess the message in all of the sectors that you work with, and I watch on with some frustration at organisations who think that they've got to employ whitefellas because blackfellas can't do the job of working with their own families because they don't perceive them to have the leadership skills. Um, and it's only because they're not in the leadership package that we see, um, when in fact the leadership may well be right in front of you the whole time. Um, but because we've constructed a, an image in our own head of what it looks like, we might completely miss it. So if you learn nothing from me today, um, learn about shifting that perception of what leadership lo looks like, because it may well be in front of you. Uh, I'll just 
finish up on this notion of high expectations relationship and then we can take some questions. Uh, and I want to point out the difference between what is high expectations and a high expectations relationship. It's quite different. Um, in a school setting, a principal might say, yeah, well, I've got high expectations. Um, if kids don't turn up with their blazer and uniform and shoes and socks on, well, I'll send them home because in our school I want high, you know, I've got high expectations. When that principal might ask, argue with me, she might say, well, that's high expectations. And I would say, yeah, you're probably right. But that's not a high expectations relationship. And so in a high expectations relationship, one might put the, put the um, suggestion that we'd love to see all kids in uniform and shoes and socks. And in a relationship, we might sit at the table with some old grandmother who says, yeah, look, that's fine, I would love that, but I've got eight kids in the house and I can't afford it. And I got no, um, I just can't afford it. And if, if I know that the kids are not going to turn up if they've got a dirty uniform because they'll be shame. And so in the confines of the relationship, we discover these complexities and we work out how to attend to them and co-create the, um, co the solutions. And in that circumstance, if we're prepared to let go of the power and, and embrace the power that exists there and acknowledge that it exists there, then anything is possible, you know. All of a sudden, things aren't as complex as they, as they seem. They're still hard, um, but we're a better chance of cracking the solutions. And so in that circumstance, I've seen a situation where the principal says, all right, well, look, I'll buy the, I'll buy the um, uniforms. And so that I'm not lowering the bar, we still insist that they wear uniform, but I'll buy them. And so that we're not giving you a handout, because I know you'd feel shame if that was the case. Eight uniforms, that equates to this many hours. We would love to have you come and read for the kids and just spend time. And so we co-create a solution in that, that kind of way. Um, does that make sense? Uh, you'll know about this notion of um, emotional bank account uh, and building relationships. Um, so I won't go into that. I can come back to it if you want. I'll just run to that last point about making it personal. So when I used to run Sherberg School, uh, and when I do anything now, I, I try to imagine the people that I'm working with, um, like particularly in the school thing. When I was principal of the school, I would pretend that when I'm having a conversation with a teacher, that I, that actual conversation about was about my own child. And so when I'm having this conversation at the teacher, the question's going around in my head, would I let you teach my own child or my own nephew and niece? And if these, the answer is no, then there's no way that I'm going to let you teach uh, anybody else. So that's what I mean by making it personal. I remember one day I was... Um, one day I was at, um, in the office and I could hear this lady swearing at, out the front, wanting to see this fucking principal, this and that, and blah, blah, blah. School's supposed to be strong as Martin. She was going to town, very angry. And so I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking, okay, this is a bit confronting. And I remember literally staring myself in the mirror and saying, okay, looking for the strength, straight away I'm thinking, this lady must love her kid. Uh, because she's up here to make a song and dance about it. Tick. Okay. And then I think to myself, what if this was my own big sister that I was going to talk to? How would I want her spoken to by the principal? What outcomes would I want from this meeting that's about to happen? When my big sister's home talking to her husband about what happened with that dickhead principal or something like that, how do I want her reflecting on that, that conversation? Um, 
And so once I kind of got into that frame, um, imagining that this was my big sister and I was going to talk about my own nephews and nieces, then you head out the door, you take your ego off and you hang it up there because you know you're going to get some skin off or something like that. And then you have the conversation, you wash through the grumpiness and you get down to the real conversation about how do we work together to get the best for your child. And I just think if we can think of that, and that's as, just as applicable in your areas as it is in, in mine. You know? and so when you're working with clients, it doesn't hurt to stop and ask yourself, what if this was my own sister? What if this was my own um, nephew or niece I was working with? Make sense? So that's what I mean by making it personal. I, um, I think I'm, that's probably a good place to pull up. So I'm going to stop and say thank you for listening and uh, take some questions, assuming we've got a bit of time left. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.